Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this talk, which is hosted by Sydney Ideas and the China Studies Centre. Uh, my name is Vivian Barth. I'm Professor of Chinese and International Business Law at the Law School and also the Director of Research at the China Studies Centre. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, May we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. It's a great pleasure tonight to give a very brief introduction to our speaker, Professor Luigi Tombo. Uh, Luigi was born and educated in Italy and was prior to coming to the University of Sydney at the Australian National University for many years. Uh, we lured him away to become the director of the China Studies Centre, which has been a great acquisition and benefit for us, as I'm sure you'll all agree. Luigi has had a very distinguished career. Uh, in brief, he's a political scientist who has almost three decades now of China experience. He first went to China in 1988, and he's been teaching and researching Chinese politics and society since that time. He has a long list of eminent publications. Amongst other things, he is, for example, the editor of the China Journal, which does research on post-1949 China. And he has a deep interest in neighborhood politics, which is the subject, essentially, on which he's going to speak to you tonight. His most recent book is, was entitled The Government Next Door, Neighborhood Politics in Urban China, which was published by Cornell University Press in 2014 and honoured by the American Association of Asian Studies as the best book on post-1900 China with the 2016 Joseph Levinson Prize. So with that resume, I think that we will all look forward to listening to, to Luigi tonight. Thank you very much, Vivian, for this very kind and gentle introduction. And uh, thank you to Sydney Ideas and to my own new center, the China Studies Center, which is uh, co-organizing this talk. This is my, I think my first uh, official talk as the new uh, head of the China Studies Center and I'm very happy to see so many people showing up uh, tonight. So um, let's get into the thick of it right away. Um, this, this is a talk that has to do with, uh, uh, um, for many years I've been working on uh, Chinese uh, urban neighborhoods and uh, in, in the most recent time, the last uh, few years, I have been working on how urbanization impacts uh, um, villages in China. So how villages, in particular very urban villages, and the people who live in them are influenced by uh, urbanization in China. So this talk is about that, and it tries in a way to provide, uh, to provide a little bit of an example, an example to you um, of what I'm talking about. Um, and uh, I'm talking about here about a, a very large process, a process that we would uh, otherwise in the world called global in a way, in the sense that we are thinking about a country that in 1978 was just 18% urban, 
and that is now between 50 and 60 percent urban. That is uh, in itself a transformation which is very important. Um, but in order for us to understand what this is, we need, to, we need first of all, to, um, um, to, to, to understand how this, how this process is taking place and what are these new people that are actually turning urban as the uh, title of the talk tonight is. Um, so let me, let me begin. Whenever we try to explain China land regimes, the first information that we have to digest, and I think I'm going to use one of my, my pictures of the local um, of the local textile factories in Guangdong. Uh, one of the first things that we need to uh, that we need to understand is the difference between two different types of uh, uh, public property of the land, which is collective property on one side and state ownership of the land on the other. Um, formally, collective property and uh, is reserved for rural land, and state property or state ownership is reserved for urban land. Of course, there are lots of exceptions. Think of forests, for example, that are actually owned by the state. But this is uh, just to simplify a very important distinction. So, what it means is that uh, use rights on urban land belong to the state and are managed by its local representative. While the use rights of a rural land, so land that is generally used uh, by rural villages, um, is legally in the hands of collectives. And these collectives have been there for a very long time uh, during uh, the period of the socialist state. And or if you want to compare them to something, we compare them to village communities that are composed by the official residents of the village. So that's what a collective basically is. So. Clearly, to urbanize, we need to turn collective land into urban land, so collective land into state land. And this is a simple enough distinction on which, however, depend a number of important features of China's territorial organization. Uh, whether it's a state land or collective land determines what you can do with that land and what type of commodity land is and whether it could be traded on the market or whether it's usable or not usable for things like production, consumption, farming, or any other functions of the land. The land is always public, but it is rather uh, collective or either collective or uh, state-owned. Um, so in the process of urbanization, one of the things that is necessary to happen is the transformation of this land from one to the other, uh, and not only the movement of people from uh, rural uh, areas to urban areas. Um, so it needs to be, the land needs to become from collective to owned by the state. Um, and as a result of this, a large number of, uh, um, of farmers have been expropriated uh, of their collective land during the process of urbanization. This is why you hear about all the conflicts that generally uh, characterize this process. And as we will see, the transition from collective to, uh, to state-owned is not a very simple one. It's not, uh, uh, a very straightforward one. Uh, the uh, other thing that I'm trying to uh, tell you here is that there is a rigid classification that is still controlled by the state of what is rural and what is urban. And this, is, uh, this began in, uh, in the 1950s and, but, and it's still going on today. Still is the state that defines what is rural and what is urban. It's not it's, it's a well-defined, it's a labeled kind of uh, definition. And it allows the state to do something very important, which is control the classification 
of space and people. Uh, so those two things are very, uh, are very important during the process of urbanization, but they used to be important before when, uh, when uh, um, rural and urban were uh, strictly divided. Uh, such, such transformation also somehow includes what is generally understood as a, as a process of rationalization. So becoming urban also means to become more rational, to be, to have, uh, uh, to be used more rationally, to be, um, uh, to be under the influence of uh, a planner, to become more planned than what collectives are capable to do. So the ideology still goes that when land is turned into urban, it's turned into a more rational and more planned uh, way of using. There are two pictures of uh, urbanization that uh, initially struck me uh, as contradictory when we look from above. And, uh, and, and they are that on one side there is a process of nationalization. So there is a process by which the state controls more and more of the land by transforming land into uh, uh, collective land into urban land. On the other side, there's also a process of fragmentation. On one, the the uh, uh, territory becomes more and more fragmented, and it leads to the reemergence of, loca of localism, of a very extreme localism that are visible, especially in the richer part of the peri-urban countryside. Um, so urbanization is hard to reconcile as contradictory uh, as a national priority, which is what the, the state government uh, needs to tell us, uh, of development that in a way manifests itself locally. This is why I'm interested in what happens uh, to this village. So the story that I will tell you about uh, today, which is most, most of my talk today, um, is one when a village uh, turned urban, uh, and it also and it has both success a successful and unsuccessful outcome. And uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is very important because it makes it both successful during the process of urbanization, but also very vulnerable to processes that otherwise it wouldn't have been vulnerable for. Uh, and I will tell you about the strategies it adapted uh, uh, to survive, thrive, or deal with change, or sometimes to deal with crisis. But before I, need to, uh, before I deal with the specifics, let me just tell you a few things about why this is so important. Uh, again, this is a, a photograph from, uh, from um, uh, a, a peri-urban village in the, uh, in, this, in the south of uh, Guangdong, um, and then in the southwest of Guangdong in this case. Um, uh, two cases scholars generally point out. On one side, they point out that this process is a process that is de facto looting farmers from their, from their entitlements. Okay. This exchange between I give you my land, you give me services, or you give me citizenship into the cities is, is uh, in a way uh, looting them of the existing entitlement. And, uh, and this is clearly um, something that has happened. It has happened to... Uh, in, in, uh, in 2005, there were already 1,300 uh, villages that had been transformed from uh, rural to urban. And in the same year, this, the sole city of Foshan had already 300,000 farmers that had become urban residents. So it's something that affects a large number of people. Um, and much of this transition has been forced. 
bargained, contested, etc. So still in 2011, it was so contested that even the state council, which is, the, which is China's government, had to intervene by saying that, uh, uh, that it was pro prohibited to, uh, uh, to uh, illegal transfer collective land to non-agricultural use, which is something that is in the constitution and in, the tw in 2011 was reinforced by the state council. Other scholars are saying something different. They're saying that uh, uh, collectives and institutions that have been put together by, uh, by villages, uh, in, especially in Guangdong, are actually uh, contributing to uh, improve the condition of the farmers and that once these institutions are in place, especially institutions uh, around the collective, then these villages have a greater capacity to resist uh, the state uh, and to avoid expropriation. Um, now, the fact that uh, uh, many of these villages during the process of urbanization find themselves in a much better economic, uh, in a much better economic situation is one that uh, has not stopped Guangdong from urbanizing. Guangdong, as you probably know, and in particular the Per River Delta, has been, have been uh, uh, involved in, in what is basically now an uninterrupted uh, urbanization. And from 1996 uh, to 2020, we see a, a transformation of land um, um, from 6,000 square kilometers of constructed land to a projected 21,700 uh, square kilometers projected for uh, 2020. So the pace of transformation has not stopped this, despite the fact that there are in place institutions of which I will tell you uh, in a little while. It's important also to remember when we, we do um, a bit of an analysis of this, uh, of this situation that um, uh, the pace of transformation is not only driven from above. So it's not just the state that wants everyone to urbanize. Uh, it is also uh, very much something that is wanted by villages. Uh, villages, uh, it's, it's a myth that villages actually want to stay rural. They want to maintain, they want to keep the land. They want to keep the uh, capacity to use the land in the way they want, but they hardly want to remain rural, which is a, a very poor and uh, uh, not very satisfying conditions, so they want to take advantage of the process of urbanization itself. Um, when, and when we're in China, we, we sometimes hear uh, two different opinions. On one side, we, we hear that some of this transformation for some of these villages has been very uh, successful, uh, and this in particular for those villages who found themselves in prime land and for which the state was willing to give them a lot of money. Uh, so there have been uh, a lot of successful uh, and you know, instant millionaire uh, farmers in many places, especially in the urban villages of Guangzhou and Shenzhen. But we also hear a lot of conflict. We also hear that a lot of the compensations uh, are, um, are the compensation schemes are failing and the farmers are not particularly interested. But these are extreme cases. And in fact, much of the reality is right in between, which is uh, what I will tell you uh, now. So I will not have time today to tell you a lot of stories about the villages that I've, uh, 
that I've researched uh, in, in Guangdong. But I will, I have picked one because I think it's, uh, it's one that mostly illustrates what has actually happened. So the village I'm talking about, so, uh, we call it Jiangho, is, uh, is a typical suburban village in the east of Guangzhou's municipality, which is in the middle of the Periva Delta, if, you, if you're familiar with the map. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have one, I forgot one. Um, but it's lying on the shores of the Periva Delta. And during the Ming Dynasty, uh, the whole area, which is uh, from the 14th to the 17th century, uh, the area was uh, uh, very close to the sea, uh, and it was on the delta, and it became very famous for its, uh, uh, for its seafood market. Most of the population at that time was made up of fishermen who dwelled in the boat, as you may, you may remember the word tanka or boat people, you know, people who live in their boats and, and uh, sell their fish from there. Um, yet some began to rent uh, reclaimed land from local villagers to farm it, uh, and, and uh, others remained employed by the landowners to, to fish. And this complex, and I'm, I'm just uh, telling you this complex type of expansion, of economic expansion, because um, the fact that uh, multiple economic activities were integrated is also one of the reasons why this is one village that is not single uh, surname, it's multiple surname. That means that many different surnames, many different families have lived uh, in it during, e during the years, and it's different from many other villages in Guangdong uh, and in the Periva Delta. And this is one of the determinants of the complexity of the local politics in this particular village. So, like all village villages, after the uh, 1949 revolution, the Socialist Revolution, um, the village established both a fisherman committee and a farmers committee, so there were two, um, two socialist uh, governance committee. And then in 1953, during uh, the national land reform, land was confiscated from the landlords and redistributed to poor farmers, as it has happened during that period. And for the first time, it was in the form of collective land. So it was collective land that was distributed to the collective of, uh, of farmers. Um, at the beginning of the Grey Leaf Forward in 1958, uh, then the village became uh, a brigade, which is part of, uh, of, um, uh, of what at that point was the Luogang People's Commune. Um, until here, it's a story of a, of a, it's a very regular story of a Chinese village. It's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not particularly strange. It has, it has uh, uh, its economic activities and the intervention of the socialist, of the socialist state. Uh, from 1979, the, after the introduction of the household responsibility system and the demise of the communes, um, villagers regained some level of control over their farming activities, then meaning that they, were, they didn't own the land, they still owned it collectively, but they were able to at least decide what to do with the land and to sell uh, products from it. Um, however, very soon after, in the late 1980s, uh, the land of the village became the target of the government who wanted to establish a development zone, an economic uh, and technological development zone. So many of the, uh, many, many of the 3,000 mu, mu is the, uh, for those who don't know, is uh, about 1 15th of an hectare is what we normally use in, in, in China to um, measure land. And uh, 3,000 mu was the availability that this village had, but uh, over 1,700 were, uh, were expropriated almost immediately. And uh, um, after that, uh, in, through many other uh, um, 
moments of expropriation, the village remained with only 200 of them. Uh, so all of the other was expropriated by the state in different ways that I will tell you about. Um, in 2014, to finish the story, which is a story of uh, economic development, if seen from the, the level of the district, um, the, uh, the district of Luogang and Huangpu were merged into a very large 500 square kilometers Huangpu district. And the, um, uh, at that point, the whole district was turned into a development zone. So it was a much greater development zone. Uh, 200 billion GDP in 2014, 14.8% of uh, economic growth in the, in the year and between 20, uh, 2005 and 2014. So we're talking about what is from outside a very successful economic story. Um, but how did this process of expropriation uh, affect the villages? So what, if, what, are actually, what actually happened to the village? Um, and, you know, we, we sometimes think that expropriation lead to immediately to, um, to negative consequences, but in fact, in this case, we had positive consequences in the first place. Um, the first thing that happened is that the progressive land expropriation from the land of the, end of the 80s uh, ended any kind of farming and fishing tradition of the villages and uh, importantly, they allow the villages to become urban, so to obtain an urban household registration, which was very important at the time. It changed the status from farmers to urban residents and allow them to obtain urban registration. Um, however, the change in status was not uh, as good as uh, was expected because many expected that by turning urban, they would obtain the same services as the urban people, but they didn't and they were, uh, uh, the, re the reward was limited compared to what uh, um, urban residents obtained. Um, the, first, uh, the first batch of expropriation, just for you to have an idea, was it had four components. It had a land compensation fee, a crop fee, an agricultural infrastructure fee, and a relocation subsidy fee, which is, um, just to say that it was a very well discussed and very well thought kind of uh, um, expropriation at, that in the end uh, gave the collective 68 million yuan or 40,000 yuan per each of the move of the land that they had. So it was, for the time, it was, it was, a, good, uh, was a good expropriation uh, for the 80s. Um, however, at the end of this process, the village was left with virtually no land, no land to till. Uh, and farmers that were granted in exchange this house of registration that had almost uh, no value. Uh, the development zone which had come in uh, uh, at the time, which is basically the government, you have to think of the development zone as an initiative of the government, in this case it was a provincial initiative, um, promised privileged access to contract employment within companies, within the enterprise, within the zone, and promised the same tax advantages for village companies as the development zone. So that, that, was, a, that was a good thing. And among um, this transition uh, for the villagers, it was this integration, this almost uh, uh, complete inter de facto integration into the zone of, of exception of the development zone, which was, again, a good thing because it had uh, a lot of rules that were different from uh, other parts of the country. 
and individuals, for example, had access to privileged tariffs for education, public health, medical services, even gas pipe installation and other type of services installation. So that was seen as a very important thing. So at least temporary, this process led to an enrichment of the villages. They were liberated from strenuous work uh, and provided, uh, provided them with resources that they could not have accessed uh, uh, if they had remained uh, uh, farmers in that period. So they said so in many interviews. They were very happy to have been liberated or from this extenuating farming work, which is, of course, very, very hard. However, it also had excluded almost entirely from access to the land. So at this stage, the village economy could be said to support a wealthier community, so a community that actually had more resources, but a community itself had been weakened and now existed only as part of the development zone and had to leave by its rules, so it was dependent on the rules uh, of the development zone. Um, the process of land expropriation also required very little participation uh, or consultation of the villagers. Uh, yet the memory of that period, interestingly, among farmers was not negative at all. Uh, when the expropriation began, the villagers had just regained control over the land and, the, and, and, you know, and they were free from the domination of the commune, um, but were easily convinced by the rhetoric and all the resources of the state to surrender it again, to surrender the land in name of the greater good of economic development, or at least that's the way they remember it. Um, farmers were very optimistic and were very hopeful and the living condition um, would improve according to what the government says after years of a very low income and a tired existence on the farm. Plus 40,000 yuan were a lot of money at that time. So it was something that could be used for uh, a lot of uh, good things. So the, 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 the farmers in that village remember this as a moment where they actually acted as good citizens, as, as, as someone making somehow a sacrifice of their land in order to achieve uh, um, growth, to achieve economic, economic development. Um, and they thought of it as a potential win-win situation. Um, the, the situation also provided other opportunities to develop. There was very, uh, they were very rapid. Um, the um, um, one change, for example, was in, uh, in transport. The village was originally very isolated and um, uh, the villagers needed to ride a boat to a nearby village, then take a second public boat to reach the first uh, bus station. Uh, but after the arrival of the development zone, of course, you know, all the factors needed to be served by buses, and so public transport began to serve the area, and villagers could finally have activities outside of the village, which also improved improve their activities. Roads became much better. The village was green. It had a process of... Uh, uh, of greening and public sanitation uh, took an altogether new aspect. Uh, people were attached to a much safer uh, uh, drinking water network, etc., etc. Um, so that there, there were a number of positive externalities that uh, everyone was noticing immediately. Um, one of the consequences that I want I want you to that is very central to what we're uh, we're doing. Uh, we're talking about today uh, is that 
there was a fundamental change in the nature of the collective economy. So we're thinking about a fishing, a fishing, a fishing and farming communities. Uh, so where farming was the main activities, uh, now villages, so it's more profitable to rent out the kind of properties that they had, um, rent out their assets, both the remaining collective land and the collectively owned building. Um, and this rapidly became the main income of the collective economy and of the household. So for many, this was central to the, um, um, to, um, to their, uh, to their household economics. Um, a lot of new property came out, so there was a building frenzy. Uh, they took advantage, many villagers took advantage of the compensation and pooled family savings, uh, built multi-storied uh, residences, which uh, are, were not very usual in the countryside, uh, or extended existing houses, uh, something that absolutely was not, uh, not seen before. Five, six-storied houses were now regular size, sometimes illegally, because of course the maximum and the maximum uh, height in the delta is fixed at 14 meters, but uh, that's not enough sometimes for someone. Um, so the building frenzy brought villagers in touch directly also with the new regulatory environment, with the fact that they are now under the rules of the development zone. And so the farmers could not simply build houses as they were used to do, uh, on their JGD, on their um, 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 housing land, um, but rather had to, or according to customary uh, land use, um, but had to apply for a proper per permit, for example. Uh, the development zone also regulated the use of land uh, pretty strictly and imposed trade rules that required a master plan, so the village had to um, to use a master plan to decide what is built where. All things that the villagers were certainly not very happy and they were um, particularly uh, keen to get rid of. So, but, the, but what's important is that these new houses were um, part of the new rental, booming rental economy and added very significantly to the house, uh, uh, to the household income. Um, so what happened is that the farmers continued to live uh, downstairs and uh, built above and just rented uh, rooms above, uh, above them for four or five stories. And some of them even, uh, uh, even managed to, to rent out 20 bedrooms and have six or 7,000 yuan uh, income. And they rented, of course, to the migrant workers who came to work for the development zone. Uh, almost all of the new factories needed a lot of workers and those workers were migrants who actually moved into the village and moved into those properties. Um, so the collective um, economy in the meantime, so the economy that is managed by collect collectively and not just the individual economy, had also been growing uh, with the uh, extension of the zone and um, uh, everyone was member of a shareholding cooperative which is uh, one of the ways I will tell you more about them uh, later on. And it has its own rental economy and used part of their reserved collective land to build dormitories, for example, and other residential buildings uh, that it was then leasing to factories. Um, 
So what, what was happening at this stage is this, in the uncertainty of this urban transformation, um, the collective were establishing new institutions, were thinking new ways or establishing new institutions, which had the goal of protecting the interest of the members of the village, the members of the collective. Um, members of the collective are not the migrants, by the way. That's one of the important distinctions. So you will find that the village has uh, in a village in Dongguan uh, at the time of the economic boom would have 10% uh, uh, of villagers and 90% of migrants. That's a very, that's a very standard um, situation, demographic situation in those places. By doing this, however, uh, by becoming more involved in the development of the local economy, um, they also were accepting a much greater responsibility for the economic development of the territory. And they were opening the gates to what were new vulnerabilities and serious, in, almost invisible economic risks. Um, so at this stage, everything seems fine, but it's not fine. Uh, in 2005, about 20 years after the establishment of the first development zone, the government decided to turn the whole district uh, into a much larger development zone and integrated within the administration of the Guangzhou municipality. So it was formally, everyone was part of this development district. It was an area now 393 square kilometers that was more than 40 times bigger than the original zone. So you can imagine how much this is actually going to impact, uh, you know, the transformation of these villages into, into urban communities. Um, so the continuing economic growth in, in this area was uh, a double-edged sword, of course. Heavy industry, core ports, power station, steel works, chemical factories, fuel storage, all were affecting the environment, uh, many aspects of the environment. Changes to the built environment became also visible. Tall buildings and factory were surrounding the community, polluted air stagnated in the village, and even Villagers said that it resisted even strong uh, winds, which is something that's very common in that area. Air and water pollution were blamed for a high number of cases of cancer of the respiratory tract in the village. Villagers repeatedly told us the story of three villagers who had died in five days of cancer just before one of the visits. Um, the river where villagers used to drink and swim was now heavily polluted and measures to prevent pollution were limited and costly, and many resolved to move out of the community. Imagine that one of the things that the government did was to build a fence to prevent air pollution from moving outside of this area. So you can imagine how useful a fence can be when we're talking about air pollution. So despite the situation, despite the fact that the situation was degen degenerated, in 2006, until 2006, there was no real opposition, there was no real conflict in, in the area, no real protest. And after all, you know, economic situation was better, 40,000 still worked, and you know, the, the opportunities generated by this transformation was uh, still important. In 2008, a few things changed, changed uh, for the worse. Um, for example, the relocation of the government of the Luogan district uh, took economic opportunities away from the villagers. 
that he was first located in the village and he was moved to a different place. So that was, uh, that was a blow for many. In 2008, you probably remember, China's industry was also facing the consequences of global financial crisis. And this led many factories to abandoning uh, the area, uh, especially the labor-intensive productions that were uh, bringing a large number of migrants and filling the village rental properties. So the rental economy was hit very badly by the crisis, and most bedrooms started to remain vacant. The collective economy was also hit by the difficulty to rent factory buildings to productive enterprise, and as a consequence, profits from collective dividends and the shareholding cooperatives also declined dramatically. Um, in that period, the dividends, which is what farmers, what members of the shareholding cooperative receive at the end of the year, amounted to only two or 3,000 yuan per family a year, which is very low. And the job opportunities at that point was very, were also limited because um, especially people who had already passed the age of 40 would have to settle for jobs uh, who were not particularly uh, highly paid. So under the pressure of the economic crisis, villagers did start regretting selling their land early. Uh, what they realized is that uh, between 1988 and the mid of 2000, which is uh, when much of this expropriation happened, the prices paid by the government to expropriate land had gone up dozens of times. And villagers had become aware of neighboring villages who had received over 300,000 yuan per mu in compensation and had been allowed to retain a much larger percentage of the land. They, they could actually develop themselves. Um, so it was for those who actually had given up for being good citizens land very early, this couldn't but uh, feel, uh, they couldn't but feel cheated. Um, there was, from this time on, uh, there were a lot of conflicts happening uh, that were catalyzed by the environmental situation um, and um, complain in the terms of compensation uh, from the, especially in this case, the polluting companies uh, that had actually rendered the village inhabitable. The final and unconcluded part of this story is that this village is uh, twice the government has tried to propose to relocate entirely the village to a different location and in 2015 has failed to uh, convince the villagers that the new location is good for them. So this is the story of this one village, um, which I, thought, I, th I think contains both uh, um, seeds of why this area has developed so fast, but also why these villages become so vulnerable, why this easily becomes so vulnerable. Well, they, they easily become vulnerable. Um, so what do we learn? Uh, and uh, I think I want to have a, yeah, I, think, I think it'd be in time. Um, uh, what do we learn from this story and from other stories, uh, similar stories and different stories uh, in, uh, uh, in the process of urbanization? We learn that urbanization is messy, first of all. And the only way to understand it, and this is uh, one of the mistakes that we made when we first started this research, uh, to try to look for one single element that would tell us what is urbanization in China. Uh, we just realized that uh, uh, we c it can only be understood by looking how local conditions change. 
at how local conditions change geographically and temporarily. And, uh, um, and this, is, this is just one example of uh, successful and unsuccessful plays uh, that actually change over time. Um, so, as I said earlier, one of the major signs of institutional innovation from the grassroots um, in this traditional situation, transitional situation, sorry, is that uh, a, a, from uh, um, um, 1993, villages in Guangdong have started to organize themselves in shareholding cooperatives. So they have turned themselves, they have turned from collective to actually corporation. So it's a process that we can call corporatization also. It's also, it's also very different from corporatization because shares cannot be sold. Um, so many have praised them as capable of defending villages better than other institutions from the predatory state. Um, so while this may be true, um, you know, they can protect the collective land from predatory expropriation and they can also generate new forms of inequality and social friction. So at the same time, while they actually protect from expropriation, they do generate different forms of inequality and social friction. So let me, let me just see uh, as a way of a bit of a practical conclusion uh, what those, uh, what, in which way they do generate uh, uh, inequalities and social frictions. It might not, not be clear enough. Um, all right, so the first thing is that the, um, um, the institution of the shareholding cooperative, and when I, when I talk about a shareholding cooperative, I'm talking about a collective arrangement by which a farmer would pool its, uh, would contribute its uh, uh, land, its collective land, to the collective, to the shareholding cooperatives, and receive a share. Uh, that share uh, is not tradable on the market, can only be uh, transferred to the next generation, but cannot be transferred to outside players. So that is a way by which villagers in, um, uh, see themselves um, uh, consolidating the, uh, the, their capacity to control land and assets from uh, the attack, if you want, from of a majority of migrants or from other villages or from the state, of course. Um, so, but this doesn't, the, the formation of these things doesn't change the nature of the community. So it doesn't appear to weaken or supersede, but in, reinforces the pre-existing structure of the community, of community politics. The collective of some of the villages remains a corporate title holder, but older informal networks like clan, interests, elites, custom, continue to overlap the formal institution of power in the village. So there is, that's, that's not changing. That's, that's still the same people who rule, rule the collective. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that it does, it, it reinforces existing elites. Um, on the other side, it does generate higher income. So uh, we do have a proof that it generates higher income. We, uh, we, uh, we have the example of Humang in Dongguan, which is where the uh, opium war started. Um, uh, for example, when, you, when we look at the statistic, we see that uh, between 2004 and 2010, uh, the income of the um, uh, urban residence committee in that particular place moved from 9,000 to 16,000 yuan. 
and so it's an increase of 73%, which is significant. However, what happens is that villages become entrenched. It, it means that um, what is mine is not yours. That it doesn't that the, the wealth doesn't spread to the to the to the whole area, uh, and significant differences among villages emerged as well, revealing that shareholding cooperatives were also tended to entrench this inequality to reinforce those inequalities between villages. So, for example, in the same township, we have uh, about six villages who are who have an income of over thirty thousand yen a year but we have nine villages who have uh, an income um, about a quarter, a quarter of that, 8,000 yuan a month. That means that every gain that a village does doesn't really reflect into, into the whole area. It doesn't spread out into the whole areas because as we know, there is no uh, taxation system in particular, but there are many other reasons as well. But one of the reasons is that this shareholding cooperative allowed that to happen. And this, of course, is one of the ways why, one of the reasons why they're criticised. Um, the other thing is that percentage of an individual income that comes from the shares is is, is is lower in certain places, lower in the in the worst places. So in certain places it's just 29%. In some other places it's 50%. But if you if 29% comes from a dividend, that means you still have to do other things. You can't leave out of it. It's just not enough. Uh, and of course, the more industrialized is a village, the higher is the uh, capacity of the village to pay dividend. Okay, the third thing is that richer villages pay for better services. Um, so shareholding cooperatives are criticized for redirecting the wealth production um, um, produced by the industrialization out of shareholder pockets uh, and uh, into the provision of services and infrastructure for the collective economy. Why is that? Because the collective economy depends on those industries and therefore those are the important things that actually generate any income. In Nanghai, for example, which is in the north of Foshan, it's now part of Foshan, uh, the total income of the cooperative is, in 2007 was 27 times higher than in 1993, where they were first established. Nanghai is the first place where shareholding cooperatives were established. Um, but the actual income of the farmers was only four times higher. Uh, so that's, that gives you an idea of how much of the income generated by the collective, uh, by, the, by the shareholding cooperative, was actually going towards um, uh, the collective economy itself, rather than through the pocket of individuals. Fourthly, uh, community invests heavily uh, to attract the industry to support the generation of the dividends. Um, and for example, between 1993 and 2007, Nahai's cooperatives um, took their economic decision much more like enterprises uh, than like social communities, which is what we would expect them to also do. Um, uh, then reinvested more money than they actually devoted to distributing to individuals. Um, so 4 billion went to develop production and 3.2 billion went into services to villages. So funding like this suggests that um, villages and their economic organization are actually shouldering, are actually paying for much of the industrialization and urbanization in the PRD in ways that save the government a lot of money, I would say, but also 
in a way, uh, exposing oneself much more to this, uh, to this process. Um, welfare has become very segregated. That's one of the things that has happened. So villages provide different type of welfare to their people, especially healthcare. Some villages have access to exceptional health care, but the neighboring village may not because their shareholding cooperative is, not, is unable to shoulder the, to shoulder the, uh, uh, the charge. Finally, the last thing that I want to say is uh, that villages, also villages that are blessed with uh, uh, very good services, become fragile. They become much more fragile than uh, we would expect them. Devolving the management of services to the village uh, is seen as one of the key reasons, for example, behind what has recently been called the debt crisis of the villages in Tongwan. Um, so these villages have borrowed very heavily. The Tongwan is on the east of the Periwa Delta, so east, this is where the east is. Um, um, but villages that have borrowed heavily, uh, especially uh, to uh, establish a rental economy and to pay for the costs that it attracts. Um, in 2011, rental income on land, residential buildings and factories made up more than 70% of the income of Tongwan's rural collective. So this is the amount that we are exposing uh, these villages to the actual rental economy. Only 9% came from profits from village enterprises. Um, and uh, these villages have found themselves directly exposed to the risk of an economic crisis, which has there then invariably uh, hit during um, after 2008. Also, villages, interestingly, were increasingly required by higher authorities to expand their own security apparatus especially with the increasing presence of large numbers of migrants. So the more migrants you have, the more you have to increase, uh, the, to increase the security apparatus or to, um, um, and um, especially in times of uh, economic boom. In some cases, villages had uh, up to 300 security officers on their payrolls and an average uh, spending of almost 60% of their income in public services. It's absolutely an absolutely unsustainable figure. Uh, such you know, the, you know, the, the schemes by which you employ people uh, to be uh, to be your security officer. It's not something that you can easily scale back, especially because especially at a time of economic crisis when opportunity for jobs are very limited. So this is something that uh, produced a very significant crisis. To conclude, I'll, I'll just I'll just finish it. Um, so Guangdong urbanization doesn't show the hallmarks of a factor of a carefully implemented national or even provincial plan. I mean, it's, the, we've heard many times the word Guangdong model to talk about this, but within the Guangdong model there are so many different ways of doing things. Um, rather, it appears as a, a very negotiated and fragmented process. Um, the land reform is incremental in nature, um, and there are entrenched and re-emerging interests of local actors that are re-emerging. There are the uncertainty of property rights. The, it's unclear who owns what and who has the right to do what. And all this combined to decide what the local outcome will be what the outcome of uh, a certain economic process in a village. I've, I've told you about one that hasn't ended well so far, but there are many that ended well. There are many that ended with millionaires. 
uh, generation of, uh, of rich people, uh, and there are many that ended much worse than this. Um, with numerous competing claims to the land, every locality seems to negotiate its own way towards industrialization or urbanization, which is, which is like saying, I don't have an answer. Um, but what is in Chinese called a, a, a fire brigade approach, where you actually try to, to uh, sort out uh, fires as, uh, as soon as they happen, rather than having a plan for everything, uh, which is focused on very short-term, very tailored solution, fermented by these elites who actually want uh, local tailored solution to be implemented. So while many of the underlying conditions can be quite similar in each locality, the centrality of land use rights, a comparable regulatory environment, abundant economic opportunities and available capital, strong local elites, growth coalition that involve the state, etc. Despite the fact that we can try to to uh, to say what factors actually work in this uh, in this process, the way in which different localities assemble these are very different. So the what matters is the way in which they are assembled, the way in which the new assemblage is created. And I, I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you, Luigi. That was fascinating. Uh, who would like to start off with a question? Yinjia. Just wait for the microphone. I need, I need, a, I need you to use a microphone. For a fascinating talk, which has given me a much better idea about a very complex process than anything I have read so far. Uh, I'm curious about fragmentation and nationalization. Uh, I was trying to figure out where that sort of, uh, I, I, I didn't get a clear idea about that in your talk. And you also related to that is localism. I, I was wondering uh, what form it takes. Thank you. Uh, let's, uh, I hope you have the next couple of hours sort of after. <laughs> I'm more than happy to talk about this. Uh, so nationalization, I use the word nationalization not because it's a, not just because it's a national project, but because in a way it is, uh, um, it is a transition from a certain type of ownership to another type of ownership. And there is a direct intervention of the state in many of them. Um, so there is a, um, a greater amount of land, if you want, in China. So there is a, a greater amount of territory that is actually controlled directly by the state through the system of uh, state ownership. So that's that's what you know. That's one of the images that we can give to this to this process of urbanization. What is happening is not only that um, people are moving to the cities, but it's also that the state is taking control of more and more territory. So that's that's a process of nationalization. But in the same time, uh, this is not happening homogeneously over the land. It's certainly not happening uh, quietly. It's happening through, uh, um, there are lots of conflicts, there are lots of different solutions, there are lots of different experiments, as you know. And all those experiments and solutions are actually allowing uh, in the process the participation of elites that otherwise would have been excluded. That, during the Mao period would probably be excluded, you know, the village elites, uh, which suddenly sit on uh, land that is uh, one day is worth nothing, the following day is worth billions of yuan because 
the state want to create a, a new real estate project there. Um, and therefore the elites find themselves with that control, with that legal control over the land which is provided by the collectives. In that, in that way, everyone just looks at the land that they have. They don't look at uh, reforming the system. Uh, a villager is interested in getting as much advantage from the process as he can, rather than solving the problem of farmers uh, in, in the Yansa Delta. And the state is willing to find a solution as adapted to the local, to the local, um, um, to, to the local situation as possible. So, um, in this in this sense, I do talk, I do talk about localism because it allows this this. Uh, enhancement, if you want, this increase of uh, value that is given, especially by the land, is what empowers the local communities. Of course, the state is always capable of intervening uh, to have the last word, if you want, to show us that. But uh, the, the, uh, it is important to remember that these uh, elites will not be there or will not exist or will not be able to provide uh, an alternative unless this process was already, was already in place. Challenge. Sort of. Yes. Thank you, Luigi. I just, um, just a clarification. When we say villager, is that sort of every man, woman, and child, or do shares go to households? Or oh, okay. how, who is a villager? Uh, a villager is uh, that's that's one of the reasons why I say you know, that I use this word entrenched, which is I don't know they they create they sort of harden the boundaries as much as possible, because a villager is only someone who actually has lived there at the time and is considered a village is uh, registered as a as a tunming at the time of the redistribution of the land. So um, villages have a tradition of redistributing the land even when it's not allowed. The government used not to allow the redistribution of land, and that's uh, somehow uh, be to maintain um, the integrity of the land. Um, but when the shareholding cooperatives were created in the mid '90s, uh, what happened is that the at that moment, what was true at that moment. So I own, I farm one and a half mu, and my neighbour farms. Uh, 0.75 of a mu, and so we get uh, a number of share that depends on the number on the on the quantity of land that we have, and sometimes, you know, arranged by the fact that someone is uh, closer to a street or not closer to a street. So this, that this redistribution happens at the creation of the shareholding cooperatives, and from uh, for a certain period of time, newborn received a share, uh, but from 2000 that was interrupted. And no more newborns receive shares. They only receive shares from their parents when they die. Um, that's to maintain the value of shares. Otherwise, the value of shares is diluted by number by the number uh, increasing number of uh, uh, inhabitants. Uh, migrants don't get a share, of course, uh, and uh, this is one of the reasons why I'm also saying that this is an institution that creates uh, a lot of. Uh, Acrimony, especially in, in places where you have 10% villages with a share and 90% migrants. Um, that's that's right about. Yeah. Thank you. I wonder whether you can tell us a bit more about um, the creation of the development zone, the Kaifa um, Chi, I suppose, which was the start of this urbanization process. I wonder. 
I guess my question is, first, what's the relationship between the village and the development zone? And also, to what extent has the creation of such an institution kind of changed or probably have a influence over grassroots administration in China's countryside, particularly in this area. I find myself, in my own research, I find um, the status of development zones always really confusing. I'm still trying very hard to understand. Um, in your picture, for example, the creation of a, a development zone alongside, I suppose, the township government sitting above the village um, um, self-autonomous um, uh, organization. Now, what's the relationship among all of them? Um, you, you mean between the village committee and uh, the shareholding committee? Yes. And also, like, how was the, the shareholding um, community's relationship with the development zone? The development zone. Does the uh, village also have a share in the development zone? Probably not. But like, how, what, what part of land no, has been? They don't been... have a share. Um, they don't have a share because the development zone actually owns the land. So when, when the land was expropriated, uh, a great, um, a large part of it became part of the development zone. And, uh, uh, um, the village was, was left with uh, less than half and then even less than that uh, of its land. And everything that it could build on this was belonging to the village, so belonging to the shareholding committee, but had to obey the rules of the development zone, which in a way was an advantage because the development zone had uh, uh, tax advantages. And uh, for example, you know, villages bought, uh, could buy tax-free uh, uh, agricultural vehicles of sort, which otherwise they wouldn't have been able to buy. So there were certain advantages to it. Um, so the advantages were especially tax-related and uh, rules that had to do with the management of the company, so the, uh, the company of the local companies. So the companies of the village were under the same rules as the development company, as the development zone. So that's, that's, that's what happened. But there was no uh, direct connection. You have to think of the development zone as the government. And in fact, the, the fact that it became a, uh, a true government, so a, a district government, um, shows you that that's, that's the level when they're thinking. Also, there is a further complication in this case, which is there are many different types of development zone. Uh, and uh, it was a proliferation of development zone, as you know, in Guangdong, there are village level, uh, district level, and regional level and national level in, uh, investment zone, and each of them trump each other. So uh, in this case, it was regional development zone, and the development and regional development zone had a higher level of government than the village, of course. So it had, uh, it had power over the village, and it could decide what the rules of the game were. Um, what else? What else was there? Uh, what else can I say? Um, uh, let's start from this, and then I'll, I'll tell you a few more of these later on. Is that was that underground? Luigi, thank you very much for your talk. Uh, my first chance to listen to you talking. Um, one question is: uh, you talk about the cost of um, this type of urbanisation at this uh, village level. Uh, at the personal cost or economic cost to those villages. I wonder if you've investigated the, the cost to the state of doing it this way. Um, and I, 
I mean the negative costs. We, we can see the positive costs um, um, with, uh, you know, world-renowned rates of urbanisation and um, economic development, but focus for one moment on the potential negative costs like the efficiency of land use and uh, especially food production um, with the country now unable to produce or be self-sufficient with grain supply, for example. Have you looked into those aspects? Um, I, um, Thank you. I, um, I normally don't answer in numbers because that's not just the way that I do it. But, uh, but let's, uh, let's uh, make a, uh, a step back, which is, you know, urbanization is a priority of this government. So this government wants to urbanize and wants to urbanize efficiently, wants to urbanize rationally. Uh, once that all the land that is actually urbanised becomes uh, becomes uh, rationally used, so there is that, that's that's the original goal. The problem is that they have to deal with a situation in which there's no such thing as rationality. It's very difficult to obtain to obtain a rational result out of a messy of a messy um, situation. So one of the things, for example, of this shareholding cooperatives is that it was um, allowing the government to um, speak to one person instead of speaking to 100 different people. So when they wanted to um, uh, expropriate something, they would go to the shareholding cooperative or they would go to the village community, etc. In Shanghai, for example, they did it exactly the opposite. In Hongqiao, when they, when they uh, developed that area, they, they used uh, teams who went directly to families, family by family by family by family. That's again another, another way to do, a very inefficient way to do it, but in, in, in the end the government obtained that. Um, as for the uh, agricultural use of the land, I've given you some numbers about uh, the construction uh, going from 6,000 square kilometers in the Periva Delta to over 21,700 uh, in 2020. That's all rural land is no longer there. Now there is, a, there was an attempt already from the end of the 90s to maintain what were called the Hongxian, you know, the, the um, red line uh, under which China would never go. So the, the quantity of rural land would never go under a certain quantity. I think it was 18 billion more at the time. I think we're under that by a large margin. And the, every attempt to, uh, to slow that down has failed so far. One of the reasons for that, and that's one of the costs, if you want, of the, of the government, is that the government is still uh, controlling the flow of resources from the cities to the center. Uh, so the only thing that the cities, well, one of the few things, that the cities can keep for themselves is the income generated by land. So that's why they're so eager, they're so hungry with land. They want to have as much land as they possibly can because building an empty building on their land is more valuable for them in terms of returns than it is to use it for agricultural use. The return on agriculture is very low. So we, China is traditionally, we have this number in our head and, um, uh, we, the China fed 22% of the world population with 7% of the uh, of the um, arable land, which is of course have changed now. Um, but it's true, and it's also um, worsened by the fact that last year 16.2% of the land was, well, in fact, 16.2% yeah, of the land 
uh, of rural land was contaminated. So it was, not, was no use for, rural, uh, for, for production of food. And that's just the one that has been actually officially uh, named as such. So this is again uh, a very major um, point uh, where the state needs to intervene itself. It cannot expect communities to solve that problem. Um, so the cost, the cost of doing this, of allowing this to happen, is gigantic. Is, uh, is I can't imagine it be. You know, the, simply decontaminating 16.2% of Chinese land is just something that China is not prepared to do. Is not doesn't have the technology for it. Doesn't have. Uh, uh, you know, maybe Australia can find a, a good investment opportunity in that respect. But this is this is something that's going to take many many years, and uh, the. Um, 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 productivity of Chinese agriculture is 108 years behind Korea. So we're talking about an agriculture that is in severe crisis and that hasn't really modernized as much as it should have. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know there aren't uh, cases of uh, significant modernization, but with no land, polluted uh, um, resources, and uh, uh, the um, and a very inefficient and parcelized type of agriculture, and there's basically no future for agriculture. Sorry to be so negative. Hi, you, you actually answered my question in part. It was, I was going to ask, could the highest, or I expect the situation would have happened a lot based on what you just said, that uh, the highest level administration of the development zone might sort of give permission or impose an industry on a village that ultimately polluted all the land. And so the villagers actually lost out their means of, you know, food survival or production survival. So that, that sounded like it was actually qu quite a common occurrence. Yeah. Um, you have to divide uh, into two type of industries. So there's, uh, there's a low polluting, low producing, uh, low impact uh, um, community or village level uh, industry. And then there's the large heavy polluting industries that the development zone was developing on the same land or basically adjacent. So everything that uh, um, was ideally originally produced in the village is no longer rural, for sure. Uh, one of the things that we need to remember is that we call these places villages because they, they, have a, they have a rural tradition. So they come from a rural tradition and people still identify themselves. As, you know, they, still today they say, oh, but we're farmers and, uh, and uh, fishermen. We wouldn't be able to live on top, top of a mountain, for example, where the government wanted to relocate them. Uh, so they have this cultural uh, belonging to this kind of tradition, but there's no agriculture left. Uh, many villages uh, in around this area um, have one, two percent of the GDP generated by agriculture. The rest is regenerated by industry and services. Um, a lot of it by services, of course, when when there are large industries. Um, but this is this is what in this case this is what happened. On one side there was the self-development of um, industries by the, um, 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 by the village on the remaining 200 uh, more of land. And on the other side, it was this very large and very important and very polluting uh, and very 
unrespectful, if you want, uh, of the local environment uh, kind of development that the government would do, or at least the development zone would do. You've been patiently waiting with your hand, <laughs> please. Thank you so much, Professor Tomba, uh, for the wonderful lecture. I have two questions. The first one is about the new in institution, uh, this shareholding cooperatives. I think uh, it is a paramount important to actually clarify how new this institution is and to what extent and in what terms. Because as you said, some entrenched interests still last. So are you saying that actually the uh, existing power structure in the, inside of the villages or inside of these uh, communities still remain or it transformed in, in what kind of way? And also my impression is that you are hinting about the relation between the, emerg the emerging of this new institution and the uh, local fragmentation you you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, uh, on the one hand, it's, may, uh, could you please give us more detail as to how much this, the, this type of institution should, uh, should be accounted for, this emer emergent fragmentation? Because if these uh, inequalities or differences have, have long existed well before the process of, of urbanization, how can we say that this, this for example, this... Uh, Fragmentation has happened. Yeah. Okay. And on the other hand, I think this, emer this institution actually speaks for a quite different story for uh, rural China. Because normally we think for villages, we think they are, for villagers, we think they are fragile. I think they are vulnerable. They, are, uh, they couldn't do quite a lot of collective actions. But actually it is, it is exactly this institution that make all these kind of things happen and makes villagers much more much stronger. So, uh, and the second question is purely oh, out. Should I ask them? You go ahead. Okay. <laughs> the second question is out of purely personal interest. Uh, you mentioned this village is a multi-surname village, but you uh, you never. Talk about multi-surname village. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you never mentioned it in your later lecture, so I'm really interested to know more details. For example, what kind of key roles this characteristic of the village has played in in the whole story you've been telling us. All right. Thank you so much. It's okay. It's um. Uh, let me see. Okay, I have another ten minutes roundabout. Um, this is two very good questions. Um, the uh, discussion on shareholding cooperatives can only be completed when uh, a significant number of them is looked at. So um, in our case, uh, the work that I'm doing with, uh, uh, with Sally Sargison and with uh, some other uh, colleagues in China is, uh, is looking, uh, has looked at three areas, looked at uh, the Yangtze Delta, the Periva Delta, and uh, uh, the areas around uh, Shanghai. Uh, all of these seem to be very, very wealthy areas. Uh, they are very wealthy, wealthy um, originally agriculture, but most of them have been transformed. Uh, one thing that we've noticed is that it's not everywhere, but um, from the beginning of, uh, of the creation of this institution of the shareholding corporate, 
1993, which is when the first, uh, the first ones were created in Nanghai, uh, they have spread around, around the country uh, to a number of different other locations. And so um, at a certain point, in, I think in 2012, the government also said, um, also in a way mandated that they wanted shareholding cooperatives in every village. Uh, which is not something that has happened, as, as you know, grassroots tend to organize themselves in different ways and to find the best solution for their own situation. And this is exactly what I'm saying when I'm talking about fragmentation. I think one of the, one of the things, the relationship between fra the fragmentation and the creation of shareholding cooperatives is that while um, collective economies have always existed, so, and the capacity of uh, people to be part of a collective economy, and especially during the socialist period in the communes, when the communes owned everything, uh, there was a, a, a great intervention, a, a very significant intervention of the state into this collective economies. Um, while these have existed, the legal premises of a shareholding cooperatives is that you're turning what is actually a natural resource, so land, into a company. You're turning, you're turning them, you're turning villages into company. So what you're doing, you do, you're doing two things. One, you are determining, you are reinforcing the capacity of that village to treat itself as something different from the other village. So uh, the next village is no longer a collaborator, is no longer uh, a neighbor, is a competition. So my village has to get the get the industry, not the next village, not the other village. So that, that's, that's where the, the, this uh, consolidation of it becomes important. Um, it, it also becomes important because in, in this situation, um, shareholding cooperatives are still controlled by the same type of elite. But these elite are now much more defined, much more clearly, have a much more clear role to um, uh, to advance themselves as as the leader of the of the um, of the village, and the capacity to talk to the outside world as uh, the CEO of a company would do. Uh, the only thing that the village does is is um, providing land, basically renting out. That's most of it is that's what it what it does. What it does. It, sometimes it manages its village village enterprises, but. A very large portion of the economy is not a productive economy; it's a rental economy. It's an entirely rental economy. So, these have reinforced the capacity of villages to actually act uh, in, uh, in in this way. So, this is when, when I'm talking about fragmentation. I'm talking about reinforcing the existence of what was already there, what was uh, already managed by, you know, an elite of a village collective. Um, and um, and the the multi surname is that the second question was the multi surname village, the multi surname village is um, um, there, there has been this reemergence of clans as as you know and uh, they've all they've um, most of the time uh, there's been a, a connection between single surname village the elite and the actual people in that in the lineage and so they you know. There's, uh, there's much more cohesion, if you want, in a, in a single surname village. Although sometimes it's so big that you know, the single surname village is, uh, is diluted in a way. Um, multiple surname village is generally the sign that other economic activities will merge at a certain point in history, uh, or 
different villages were merged. So for example, there are villages uh, that were merged uh, right after the Cultural Revolution because what happened during the Cultural Revolution was this division, this political division between different lineage uh, and conflict sometimes happened uh, according to lineage and the party sent down in, in one case that I've studied, the party, there were six villages that were merged, but nobody knew exactly who the party secretary should be. So the party sent down a secretary from the center, a secretary that was from outside of the village, merged everyone, everyone became a deputy. So nobody really knew who the leader of this uh, village would be because the only person that could be trusted to have the power was actually from outside the village. So in a case like this, then you have a much more complex uh, situation. You have, uh, you have an elite that is not homogeneous. It doesn't work towards the same goal. And you normally have, uh, with this kind of divided leaderships, you, not always, but uh, most of the time you find that the economy of that village has not developed as much as the next village, just because there is such a division. So that's just one of the examples in which, in which it is important. But uh, uh, clans, uh, there's, a, there's, a big, there's a big argument in the Guangdong um, uh, model literature that uh, single, clans, um, uh, single clans village are stronger villages. They have a much clearer capacity to uh, uh, protect themselves from, uh, from corruption, from the intervention of the government, from, um, from expropriation, etc. But I don't, I'm, I, I don't have a conclusive answer to, to that. It's just a, a possibility. Well, I think that you will all agree that this has been a really interesting and fascinating discussion as to how all of these entities work. And so if you could just join with me in thanking Luigi for his very interesting presentation. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.